The following resources presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to A Counselor's Point of View. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I will be your host. We welcome our listeners to our podcast today. We are right in the middle of a series on identity for eternity. Last week, if you've been uh, listening in on our podcast, you'll know that uh, we have been going through the terms and definitions of the exchange life or the abundant life or the union life or many churches call it different things. It's basically the message of the indwelling life of Christ. There's many terms that people tend to not understand when they are trying to communicate the abundant life of Christ. In fact, there are terms that are thrown around Christendom that oftentimes leave a person calloused because they have no clue what you're talking about. So using the term Hudson Taylor used, the exchanged life, literally bores people today. Because it doesn't communicate exactly what Hudson Taylor was trying to say. Hudson Taylor didn't come up with the term exchange life. The Lord did. The whole process of the New Testament is helping us understand that the law got fulfilled so that we could have the Spirit, the law of the Spirit living inside of us, living out the fulfilled law. And even what I just said has brought confusion to listeners. Hopefully today we'll bring additional insight and understanding to what I just communicated. But we want to thank our online listeners for joining us. Today we're going to be specifically addressing the power of the cross. So as you know, we've been going through the alphabet with the terms and definitions explaining the indwelling life of Christ, and we are on C, which obviously covers the term cross. This is probably the most significant word in the New Testament that you need to pray, as Janie shared in her testimony earlier, you need to pray that the Spirit opens your mind to understand the scriptures we're going to be covering this morning. Do you know if the Spirit of the living God decides not to show you something this morning and decides that you are to be left in ignorance to a certain degree? Because every moment of transformation has its perfect moment of life. So there are times and testimonies where people who have been in ministry their entire lives and they didn't get the true power of the cross until they were in their 50s or 60s. God is not impressed with large ministries. God is not impressed with large churches. God is not impressed with anything outside of his own presence, his own glory. If you're out there listening, and you're one of these ministers striving for success, and you're striving for influence, and you're striving for anything outside of getting the gospel of Jesus Christ out to a hurting world, you're a candidate for ending your story the same way, in failure, in defeat. God will dry any ministry up that he wants, who's not preaching the absolute full gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is the living life of Christ in the believer. Performing for Jesus gets you nothing but more flesh, and that is what we have to talk about. So this is number 75 in our Identity Terms of Endearment series. And just as a reminder, this miniseries will be devoted to defining, explaining, and practically making use of the biblical terms given to us by our Lord. Of course, we're not going to get to them all. We just picked out key words that help us understand what true Christianity is about. I'd like to have Ian come and share with us 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Please stand as the word is being read. 
The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, but violent, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but a lover, not a lot, of, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of evil of the devil. Moreover, he must well be well without. Moreover, he must be well th thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery, mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good understanding for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know that one ought to behave, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a beauteous of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in his flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Thank you, Ian. Reading verse 16 once again, it says, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in his flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You may be seated. The requirements of leadership in the church today, uh, honestly, between you and I, is a big joke. We are so far beyond the guidelines of having authentic leadership within the church that we can hardly address it anymore. If you lined up absolutely every church in the world, not just in this community or in the nation, but in the world, and you started putting these requirements out as a checklist saying, every one of you men who have only had one wife since your youth, please step forward. That's where it starts. Now keep in mind here in America, I don't know what it is in your country, but keep in mind here in America that the divorce rate is higher in the church than it is in the world. That's right out of Washington. Just that one requirement of saying, how many of you men, deacons, elders, pastors, teachers, evangelists, any of these spiritual manifestation gifts that you know of, to put that requirement out, Take one, one foot forward. I would love to know if someone has done the research and the, you are one of our listeners. I would really love to have you text me this statistic. I cannot find it. But I would like to find the statistic of how many divorced leaders there are in the church worldwide. Now, it's probably an impossible task. But if you do know, you've done your research, you can text me at 602-292-2982 because that is an important statistic to me. Why would it be so important for the leaders of the church to be the husband of one wife? And those of you who are starting to fudge on me right now thinking that is more of a Mormon view of having two wives at one time, uh, that is not what it means. Why would that be important? Why would that one piece, that one order brought to a church leader be important? Christ would never marry anyone outside of the bride of Christ. 
He will never divorce the bride of Christ. He will never take on another God. People believe doctrines by their positions their leaders take. Today we have a church where we are adopting homosexuals as pastors, females as pastors, and the list goes on and on from there. I could bore you to death on American statistics of what's happening to us. These requirements are a joke. So today I speak to those of you who are leaders within the church who are authentically clinging to the guidelines of leadership of the church. Those of you who are off-center, so to speak, and you have an interest in listening to this message, God bless you. I pray that the Spirit opens your mind. But I am speaking to the qualified leaders of the church today. You cannot introduce the other requirements of these leaders until that first requirement is in order. You can't. It's just like saying to a gal who is a worker outside the home and she has four kids in daycare. The first requirement for the ladies is to be lovers of her husband and a worker at home. Because how can you put the burden of everything else onto her if she's out in the community working? If she's fulfilling the role of her husband? You see how it works? Some of you who just heard me say that know that's exactly where you're at. So we need to talk about the power of the cross and what it really means. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is an important truth to the Christian gospel. In fact, it is crucial to the gospel. The crux of the message, if we might employ additional English words, derived from the Latin word crux, which is obviously where we get our word crucifixion as well, but this whole idea of the cross inside the very domain, the very life of Christendom starts right here. You see, going from the old to the new, there is this birthing canal in the cross. And everyone must pass through this cross. In order to pass through this cross, to have this second birth... It, it, the illustration that is being used by Peter and Paul and Jesus Christ himself is there must be a born-again experience. That is not the standard of the church today. Church leaders, listen to me very carefully. Just because your people are sitting in your pews, sitting in your tents, and they're, they're shouting out the name of Jesus Christ does not mean they are saved. It doesn't mean they're on the right side of the cross. You see, the closer you get to that birthing canal of the cross, the more excited you get about Christendom. And people start using the terminology before they're saved. And what happens in most churches is that the pastors, teachers, Sunday school teachers, or whoever start to assume this person is born again. Well, 27% of the American churches don't even use the term born again anymore. They think because you love Jesus Christ and you talk about love and forgiveness all the time, you're on the right side of the cross. And you haven't even come out of the birth canal, folks. Just because you're tasting the cross does not mean you've ingested the cross. This is critical. This is the gateway to salvation. This is the gateway to transformation. This is the gateway to what some of you call Christendom. I ask you what Christ you serve. Because if it's not Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah... The cross will become fashion to you. You'll wear it on your t-shirts. You'll dangle it from your ears. You'll use the term crux like it is some kind of fashionable statement that as long as you say it, people in the church will assume you're one of them. And the truth being, 
you have not even passed through the birthing canal of the cross. And as you're passing through that filter, as you're passing through that birthing canal of the cross, if you can just picture in your mind a small passageway in the center of the cross. And as you pass through that birthing canal of the cross, your old self, your old nature, your damnic nature, your old man, you call it what you want, but I'm here to tell you, it will not go through that cross with you. And that's the power of this message. That's the power of the cross. And those of you who have somehow been able to rationalize and justify the old man, new nature, damnic nature, unregenerate spirit, whatever it is you want to call it, lives on the right side of the cross, you are deceived. Here's some questions we have to address today. Who invented the torturous cross? Yeah, 90% of the church says Romans. Actually, the Babylonians were using the cross. In fact, the idea of the cross has been around for a very, very, very long period of time. Our second question is, why was Jesus picked for the T-type cross or the cross type? There's the X that we talked about last week, and that's when you're basically pinned this way, and it's literally an X, and then they would torture you. And then there is this T-type of cross, which is mostly what the Western Church associates Jesus being cruxed with, and that is traditionally what our theology says Jesus was crucified by. The T is directly associated with the Torah, you see, there's a letter in the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, that actually is the cross. So why Jesus was picked for this kind of crux, crucifixion, was because it directly aligns itself with the law of the Old Testament. He was the T. He was the Torah being fulfilled. Nothing that happened in the gospel of Jesus Christ was by accident. So what did the cross become or why did the, the cross become a fashionable statement? We got to talk about that. What is the real purpose of the cross? We certainly are going to be addressing that one. And why did Jesus make the cross famous? The term famous is not a western term. It's a biblical term. Making something famous is putting a person, place, or thing inside a culture that constantly comes up when you're angry or even when you're happy. And if someone is angry, what is the most two common swear words in every language in the entire world? GD and putting a different tone on Jesus Christ. Why are those two the two leading swear words in the entire world? Because Jesus is famous. Demons are always after him. Demons are afraid of him. Demons are whatever. And in, in the world today, you're fine if you say God in a song. You're fine if, if you preach messages and you're talking about God the Father. You're fine if you're praying to the Father. But to hear the name Jesus Christ spoken is being reduced daily. In our culture, there was a time when I heard Christians talk about a television show called Touched by an Angel, and, and they, as a church, started to think that finally Hollywood is accepting Christianity. Well, you need to answer the question if Jesus Christ was spoken in that show or any show. For that fact, media or media is critical if for the enemy to use to cause the church to go emergent. Emergent is nothing more than replacing the name Jesus Christ for the term Christianity or the term God the Father or the term anything but the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. Several weeks ago, we did a sermon on the titles of Jesus. 
We only picked 186 out out of the 2,000 that are mentioned, but we went through some of those titles, which should have left us with the impression of exactly why it is so incredibly important to use the name of Jesus. So we need to talk about that. Also, what is the power of the cross? What, what, what do we mean by the power of the cross? What's so important about the power point of the cross? You take the power out of the cross and you have a fashionable symbol. You have something that's easily talked about without offense. What, what does it really mean to be crucified with Christ? Because Scripture makes that quite clear that we are. But please, 602-292-2982, text me if you really think you have the ability to explain what it means to be crucified with Christ. I want to listen. I want to dialogue with you about it because that is a point of the cross I find very few are able to explain. But yet, it is the PowerPoint of the cross. Justification is understanding that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Sanctification is an embracing of the full reality that you died on the cross with Him. So, accepting half of the cross is obvious for the church today. But understanding both sides of the cross of receiving co-death, burial, and resurrection, along with the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us, which is what we would classify as a full gospel. So why does everything start and finish with the power of the cross? So let's take a look at it. Those of you who are listening and do not have the PDF in front of you, Please remember you can go back to our library. If you click on that PDF icon, you'll actually open up the slides that we are using right now. Cross. Transference from Adam to sin. Sin to the cross. And then the cross to or in Christ. There's our brief scenario of the pathway of the cross. So in his death on the cross, Jesus was taking the death consequence of sin for all mankind. Now, whether you're a murderer, or you were a murderer, or you were any other sin you want to tie your identity to, know this, there is no sin that gets in the way of you being able to receive the transformational life of Jesus Christ. No sin. The first thing Satan does to sin, with sin, in your life, is to get you to think and be deceived into thinking, oh, I'll never be forgiven because the sin that I committed is too great. That is the deception that Satan uses to stop someone from embracing the power of the cross. But I'm here to tell you, murderer, thief, drug addict, it makes no difference. Nothing can stop you from being brought to the cross. So this he, Jesus, could do in that Jesus was the sinless Savior enacting a consequential spiritual commonality with the whole human race to do one simple thing and that is to provide life. That's it. And life abundantly. As many of our leaders made clear to us. So it isn't to release you. It isn't the focus really isn't about you. It is to provide you with a pathway for you to be dropped into the Hebrew word picture of life is a fish swimming in a stream. You're being dropped into a river of life. This isn't about you. You're just being given an act, a blessing, a gift 
of being dropped into the river of life. A flow, eternal life. So that's the whole purpose. It isn't to make you happy. It isn't to get you to stop you from sinning. It's to drop you into the river of life. And it takes the power of the cross to do that. The first, at, the first man, Adam, had enacted a far-reaching spiritual disarray when, his sin, when, when by his sin all men died spiritually, as it tells us in Romans, that because of Adam's sin, all have sinned. Someone please tell me how that happens. How could because of Adam eating from that fruit, you and I today are faced with sinners around us every day? Sin is in the seed. Why wasn't there sin in Jesus? Whose seed did he have? The seed was brought by the Holy Spirit, but whose seed did he have? called the seed of righteousness. You see, when Adam chose to sin, there is no scripture anywhere in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, that says because of the, the sin of Eve. Wasn't she the first one? You see, sin doesn't travel through blood. So listen to me careful, particularly the Catholic listeners. Listen to me very, very carefully. The reason why the Catholic Church adopted the Holy Mary, perfect body of Mary, is because they did not understand the definition that we are explaining right now. The simple fact is that the blood of a mother does not mix with the baby. Is that true or false, ladies? That's science today. So Jesus, literally being birthed by the seed of the Father, being inside Mary's womb, and growing like a normal baby, her blood that had sin in it was not mixed with Jesus' body. Sin travels through the seed of man. And the requirements of a man in leadership, not that he is to be sinless, is different. And that was no different from the second generation of Adam to Paul revealing to us, to his mentoree, Timothy, of the requirements of a church leader. These are critical pieces, folks. So what happened is this particular church religious group had to adopt the idea that Mary was holy and perfect and was the mother of God. She was not. She bore the Son of God. And she cared for him as his mother. As any mother who is listening right now. But that's what us humanoids do. We tend to not understand the true terms of biblical spiritual things. And we put our assumptions in there. And then, the, and then Satan literally goes, I can start a church denomination on that. I can start a movement on that. I can use this to destroy the power of the cross by leaving Jesus Christ on the cross in a crucifix, hanging on in front of the, in front of the church, and somehow getting people to think they're not quite going to get through that cross. That is happening everywhere. There's no relic. There's no things you can gather around you. There's nothing you can dangle from your ear. There's no t-shirt that you can wear that is going to give you salvation. There's no priest that you can go through that can forgive you of your sins besides Jesus Christ. So the enemy has, has moved the whole entire church in a direction that basically communicates anything but the power of the cross and how sin is truly dealt with. So God had originally told Adam in the garden, in the day that thou eat from it, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. 
The consequence of sin was death. And in its various spiritual separation of God, psychological effects on man, and physical forms, body would die daily. Let's talk about the incarnate life of Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, was incarnated as the God-man, who as a man could experience the death consequences of sin, and he literally became sin on our behalf. This is so critical for us to understand is that not only is he bearing, is he taking on the consequences of what Adam did and then his sons and daughters and so forth and so on, but he literally became sin. So when this moment on the cross, when Jesus is hanging there and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This moment. When theologically we need to ask the question, well, we're talking about the Son of God here. We're talking about a man who does not have sin inside of his body. And why is he being deceived that his father has forsaken him? You see, when he emptied himself out as God, and when he went through this whole process as man, a God-man, and he literally became sin on our behalf, there was this moment on the cross when God the Father turned his own head away from his son. Because God will not show face to sin. And the enemy has used that lie and deception in the church today to think that just because people are saying they know Jesus and they talk Jesus and they know the cross, they talk the cross, but they've never gone through the cross, that somehow the deception has entered into the church that they're a believer. And the church is absolutely filled with these people. Prophets and teachers and apostles and titles and groups that I have seen that have come together to say that they are the authentic church. They are the authentic denomination. Unless you're baptized, you're not going to be born again. Unless you're this, unless you're that, they've put all of these holy sacraments on this pathway to the cross that don't even exist. Our church is in, a, is in a mess worldwide. And they need to understand who the true incarnate Christ is and what he did on our behalf, what he became on our behalf. And if you literally translate this out as sin being identity, he literally became the identity of man on our behalf. Then he took his last breath by saying to his Abba Father, it is finished. And I give my spirit to you. And he dies. He goes in the tomb for three days. He descends to the lower parts. Need to ask yourself a terminology question. What were those lower parts? And what did he pay for exactly in those three days? He paid for your sin, he paid for your old identity. He left your old identity in the pit of Hades, which is soon to be hell. Your old identity, your old nature, your sin, your whatever you want to call it, that pathway goes down to the pit and Jesus Christ paid for the penalty. He didn't just say it. He paid for the penalty of your sin, your old identity. And when he came out of that, that dark place and the stone rolled away from the tomb and he had life breathed back into him, this moment of transformation had absolutely no sin, old nature, Adamic nature, unregenerate spirit, whatever you want to call it, none of that was with him. It was a brand new life. 
in every single form, spiritually, psychologically, and for Jesus physically. In order to have this life of Christ within us, we must appropriate by faith what we were just explaining. Payment of debt. While still suspended on the cross and facing the imminent physical death, Jesus explained, it is finished. The rest of today's message and next week's message is going to be about the finished work of Christ. So someone please tell me. When the term finished is used, what does it, what does it mean? Even in your frail human mind, what does that mean? Does it mean you're 90% done with the job? 95% done. 99% done. 99.9% done. It is finished. Now stay with me, you church performers. And these are the gentlemen I hear from the most, is the church reformers. The most clever, absolutely deceiving, most clever thing for the enemy to get inside of the church. If the true finished work of Jesus Christ is truly what he said it was to his Abba, and that is, it is finished. When those words came out of Jesus' mouth, someone please tell me what the scriptures say happened to the entire world. Darkness, Darkness filled the earth. Was there an earthquake? Yes. Just as there will be in, after the end times. The same kind of earthquake that's going to divide Israel into three pieces. We're talking about a God here who's quite serious about this finished work. You see, when, he, when Jesus said, it is finished, the entire universe shook with one, rejoicing, two, the enemy started freaking out because it literally divided the world of darkness from the world of light. Spiritually, psychologically, and physically. When he said it's finished, if the entire universe, including this globe, would react so traumatically to those words it is finished, and we treat it like it's some kind of Western dictionary term, well, that's why we need to spend a little extra time talking about the finished work of Christ. The perfect tense is used indicating complete action in the past, manifesting in the present, remains under the future. In Hebrew, the meaning is fulfilled requirements of debt. In the first century, Jesus' words were inscribed on certificates of indebtedness. When they were paid off or paid in full, they literally integrated Jesus' words on the cross into the cultural language of it, the debt being paid. If you only knew how much of the culture around you you're seeing right now, look out your window if you're listening on a computer. Look out your window and look at that community. If you only knew how much of the days and the hours and the, and the terms that are used that started at the day of the cross, literally the dating system that you're looking at on the calendar on your wall is based on this moment that it is finished, B.C. and A.D. No, but we treat this life and this finished work of the Old Testament lightly. The whole world changed at this moment when he said it is finished. The debt was paid, folks. Sin presented an indebtedness of condemnation. Condemnation comes from the Hebrew word being pinned up or imprisoned without key. That's the Old Testament. 
You are condemned, you are in prison, and the key has been thrown away. The law and the letter of the law will kill and destroy and condemn you. And I have proven to you, you cannot get out of that prison until there is this passageway to the cross. The left side of the cross is where you get liberal doctrines. The right side of the cross, which is where you get conservative doctrines. I can draw politics around this point, PowerPoint of the cross. The reason why you have liberal doctrines inside of churches and denominations today is because they have not quite gone through the power of the birthing point of the cross. And that doesn't make sense to our listeners or many of our listeners because you have been steeped into doctrines that do not get supported by the spirit of the life of Christ, which is the law of the spirit. So sin presented an an indebtedness of condemnation. The law presented an impossible debt and a big IOU before God. And, And through Christ, this debt was paid in full, thus removing condemnation, damnation, removing the pinned up, locked up position of being in that prison cell, opened the gate of that prison cell, as the stone rolled away from the tomb, that's exactly what happened to every single person in providing an opportunity of freedom. Who thought they could live their Christianity by doing the right things. So what is the things that we do today to hurt fellow Christians the most? We judge them. We decide if they're on the left side of the cross or the right side of the cross. And the very one who's judging might want to take a look in their own room. The debt was paid in full, thus removing condemnation, the self-life performance, leaving only the resting position in Christ because of the finished work of Christ. You can't have rest, rest, abide, walk. You can't have rest until you embrace the finality of the cross. I don't care what you say to me. You cannot have it. You cannot have rest until you embrace finality. And the church is causing people to try to learn more, to get degrees, to try to become stewards of education for transformation. The fact is, is there's no scriptural evidence of Christ, Peter, Paul, or any of the descendants after them that said, once you get through the power of the cross, I want you to go get a master's degree in Christian education in order to minister to the church. There there is nothing in scripture with that. What we do find in scripture is God taking very educated people and dumbing them down into literally functioning in the simplicity of the mind of Christ in them. The more intelligent you are by certification of education, the less you're going to rely upon the mind of Christ in you. That's a fact. The more dependent you are on Christ Jesus, the more dependent you will be on his thinking inside you. Because see, my thoughts are not his thoughts, and my ways are not his ways. There's a clear distinction between Steve Finney and the life of Christ in him. And as long as I'm dependent, I will be dependent on one of them. The enemy had to build a system within Christianity to develop certification of knowledge, tree of knowledge, of the good stuff and the bad stuff. And to have them come into the churches and decide for the people attending the churches what is good and bad. Instead of the life of Christ. It isn't knowing the intelligence of Christ. It's the life of Christ. Cross, benefits and power. Redemption is one of the greatest benefits provided to us by the power of the cross. So whereby we are bought with a price, 
that has been paid in full by the death of Jesus is the corrective aspect, whereas regeneration is the restoration or the restorative factor. Now, what's this thing that we hook up to when the city gets hit by a bolt of lightning and our lights go out? 20 minutes, we have... Sterling, Kansas, as one of the largest generators in the, in the state of Kansas. Within 20 minutes, they, they empower this entire little city because they have a generator. That's a very easy concept to understand for a lot of people. So this generator kicks in and provides power and life to all these homes. That's what happened in salvation. You see, because of our sin, we became dead to Christ, to God, to the Holy Spirit, to the Trinity. And so therefore we were born in sin. Unregenerate. No life source. So therefore the only way that you could actually produce life in your life is by things that make you feel better or empower you with self-control and performance. There is nothing that feels better than when you achieved a task successfully and finished it correctly. And that's the principle Satan built the church on. Like you have a solid prayer life, you have a solid Bible reading life, you have a solid educational life, you're constantly pursuing the ways of the Lord. There's so much helping Christ finish the work that's already been finished, that it makes the believer think they're healthy, wealthy, and wise. Literally, prosperity doctrines are birthed through that deception. Because of the cross and his finished work, all converted born-again believers share in his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, the Spirit's outpouring, and complete the end times expectations. To understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the inward dwelling life of Christ. It's critical. And those of you who know, that's why I love the book of Revelation. It's my husband telling me the finality restoration story of what he promised me. But if you study the book of Revelation as it's a theology, you might not get the full message of truth. Due to the significant work Christ accomplished on the cross, all verbiage used by the writers of the New Testament maintain the words Jesus cried out on the cross, and that is, it's finished. Everything, everything they wrote, go back and check it yourself. It's finished. It's done. So that's why we have to take a healthy amount of time next week and we have got to talk about what ways do we as true into our believers, those are true born again believers, and those who follow Christ like he's some kind of master and we're a puppy. And those, that's the deceptive group because they really think that they're saved because they're following Christ. No, they're tasting of the cross. Versus understanding experientially the cross. And then there's the third group. That they know that they have not had a born again experience. They may believe in Jesus and God or may not. And honestly speaking, they are the most honest group. I love it. 602-292-2982. Text me. Call me. I love it when someone contacts me and says, you are just full of hot air. There is no Jesus Christ and you know it. That is raw. That is reality. That is truth with a small t. They are embracing their lost state. It's easier to take a man from darkness to light who knows they're in darkness. 
But someone who's functioning in the gray, the liberal principles of the left side of the cross, you cannot conform them to the image of Christ because they think they are. They're the worst type to work with. It's the emergent church that is out there today. It is ministries who believe that all gods are leading to one superior God. And that's why I have a great deal of love and respect for a lot of my Muslim contacts. Because they're honest. They they say right to your face who they think this Jesus Christ is. But try to convert someone who's been in the church for 20 years. Good luck. Because every verbiage you use, every word from the God's dictionary that you use, they're thinking, I know this. By the knowledge of the tree of knowledge. I know this. You use the term salvation, and they say, I know this. Use the term pathway of the cross, or rebirth, or any of these very offensive words. They go, I already have all that. Well, how'd you get to it? Could you please explain that to me? Could you explain to me the birthing canal of coming from darkness to light? Not darkness to gray. Not liberal doctrines. And if you think that we have a liberal church today, you've seen nothing yet. I predict, not that this is worth anything, this is me speaking and and not the Lord, but I predict that soon and very soon that the average church-following Christ follower will not know the difference between the Antichrist and Jesus Christ. Very soon. So therefore, the merge of the world church will come together so fluidly that the average deceiver will easily deceive the elect. There is no way that I am ever going to support the emergence of all pathways lead to one God. Not going to do it. Shoot me, kill me any way you want. Torture me, stretch me, put me on a rack. I will not ever support the emergent church. I will not. There's only one way to Jesus Christ, and that's a pathway of brokenness. That's the pathway of the cross. There's only one way to heaven, and that is through Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And the only way I'm going to get to his father and have his father become my father is through Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the only way. The pathway of emergence is wide and thousands and millions of ministries and churches are on it. But see, the pathway to the Father is narrow and fewer on it. Listen to me carefully, you church historians. Listen to this very carefully. The day of church history of thinking that being in a denomination and being in a cultural group of, of believing certain things that your leader within the church taught you brings you salvation is gone. Salvation is already available for people all over the world by simply receiving the love of Jesus. Not the salvation of Jesus, the love of Jesus. And I know that's why I offend a lot of listeners, because I am absolute... I'm very pinpointed, literally as a thread going through the eye of a needle, I become that pinpointed, and if you do not go this route, this way, you're not truly saved. There will be millions, if not billions of people, standing before Jesus Christ one day, and they're going to say, but but Jesus, I used your name. 
I casted out demons in your name. I performed miracles in your name. And what's Jesus' response to them? Some of our listeners are already quoting it. What is it? I don't know you. Do you know how many ministries that are out there and churches that are out there that are doing miracles? Do you have, I'm, a, I'm a little guy in the, in the vineyard and I'm telling you the emails I get from overseas of guys trying to prove to me they've got this life because of the miracles that took place on Sunday. That proves nothing. Satan is a replicator of all of the manifestations of the life of Christ. But you know the ones that stand before Jesus very humbly and say nothing and leave judgment to him. That's a sign of a real believer. I don't tell my leader what to do. I don't tell my husband what to do. I don't try to sell my husband on my security. I don't, I, that is not my call to be God within God's domain. I stand humbly, silent before the living God. And when Jesus reaches out and says, you are my beloved bride, that act of grace, that act of love, that act of power, that act of forgiveness, all of the appropriation of the power of the cross is embraced. That moment forward in eternity as a bride of Christ wasn't because of any of my words. It was because of the words of my husband. Anyone asked to prove their doctrines is already wrong in their doctrines. I'll say it one more time. Anyone asked to prove their doctrines is already wrong in their doctrines. No one asked to prove the finished work of Christ. He already did it. Next week, we're going to talk about what we indwelt Christians, what we Christ followers do to try to help complete the completed work of Christ. Here's our identity statement for today. Paul states Christ, who sent him, to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. Who was, according to church history, the most educated man in church history? Paul. And to have him reduced down to being a bunch of fumbling words, stand before people fearful and trembling, stand before people without persuasive words anymore, is huge. To be able to say, I determined to know nothing. Listen carefully, leaders. Those of you starting your degree programs and going through more, just listen very carefully. For I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's taking a brilliant man, the most educated man on the face of the earth, and bringing him down to the point of going, I am nothing, and anyone who thinks he is something deceives himself. We'll pick up on that two weeks from today. The finished work of God sent, set in motion at the cross is essential to the life-changing news of the gospel. The cross of Christ being made void when the finished work, the full bridal of biblical significance, is not recognized. When the cross of Christ is presented and received by emergent believers as a historical truth or a belief system rather than life. And those of you who are in leadership of denominations, print off this page. Post it on your wall for a week. This is so critical for you to understand. This has got nothing to do with certification. And those of you who are pushing other people to get certified to minister the gospel, the only thing I can say to you right now is I pray and beg and plead you will hear the mind of Christ. Because certification comes by the completed finished work of Jesus Christ. I join the Master 
in his fulfilled work. And I'm not against education. And I'm just telling you that the purpose of your education is coming into play. The cross of Christ is made void when continuing to perform or work to make the sanctifying work of Christ something the believer adds to or helps out with rather than the saving life of Christ. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at iomamerica.org. That's iomamerica.org.